And I invite you to open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. We're looking at Ephesians 3, verse 16 and 17 today. As we continue working our way through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and just to remind us where we are, here at the end of Ephesians 3, we find ourselves really right in the middle of one of the apostles, Paul, one of the apostle Paul's prayers for the Ephesians. And we, we see, you know, several of his prayers throughout his New Testament letters, but this specific prayer in Ephesians 3, verse 14 to 21, um, is considered by many to be one of the greatest and most profound passages in all of Paul's writings. And we, we began looking at um, this, this prayer last Sunday, and we began by focusing on why Paul prayed and, and how Paul prayed. And a summary, really, of what we saw last week in the introduction to this prayer would be that, that Paul prayed to God the Father as a dearly loved son with reverence and with confidence and with boldness for God to enable the Ephesians to empower them, to enable them with all the spiritual resources they needed to be who God in Christ has made them to be and called them to be. So we looked at why he prayed and how he prayed, and and today we begin to look at really the heart of this prayer and look at, okay, what did Paul pray for them? And I think one one pastor's summary of, of what Paul prayed in this prayer at the end of Ephesians 3 is very, very helpful, that he wrote, here we have the distilled essence of the Christian experience, of the Christian life. What Paul prays for in these verses is a summary of all that God intends for us in Christ. And remember, Paul Paul knew this this church in Ephesus, that he had served as his pastor. He knew them well, and this is what he prays for them. Theologian John Stott describes Paul's prayer at the end of Ephesians 3 as, as a staircase, and he just keeps climbing higher and higher with each of his petitions. And there really are four main petitions that Paul makes For the Ephesians. And so uh, Stott lists these four petitions or four stairs or steps this way. He says, Paul prays first that they may be strengthened by the indwelling of Christ through his spirit. Secondly, that they may be rooted and grounded in love. Thirdly, that they may know Christ's love in all its dimensions, although it is beyond knowledge. And fourthly, that they may be filled right up to the very fullness of God. And so last week we focused on why and how Paul prayed, and today we begin to look at these, these stairs, this staircase of prayers that, that Paul prays by, for the Ephesians by looking at the first two steps, or the first two um, petitions. And we see that Paul is praying for these Ephesian Christians to grow up in Christ, to become spiritually mature to be sanctified, to, to be conformed more and more into the image of Christ, to, to become more Christ-like. We see what he prays for them, what his, what his, what's on his heart for them, and I think we can also learn a lot uh, for ourselves and, and how we ought to be praying for ourselves and for one another from looking at this prayer. And so the, the first two of these four stairs or steps are going to be our main points today. And so, so listen for them as I read the passage to you. And, and remember that the whole time that we are looking at this, this prayer, this section, this prayer kind of section by section, piece by piece, I'm going to read all of Paul's prayer for us each Sunday so that we keep uh, the context and the scope of this prayer in our minds. And so hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, life-giving word. I'll begin reading in Ephesians 3, verse 14. 
For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. And it's given to you in love and for your good. And we're going to look at these two verses, verses 16 and 17, under two headings that really are just the, the two petitions that Paul makes. First, he prays they will be strengthened by the indwelling of Christ. Second, they'll be rooted and grounded in love. They'll be strengthened by the indwelling of Christ. And then second, they'll be rooted and grounded in love. And so that first request, they will be strengthened by the indwelling of Christ, is our first main point. And it's a lot longer than the second main point, okay? So don't be, don't be thrown off by that, okay? I think we'll get out on time, more or less. Okay, so looking at, looking at verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So notice that, that Paul, Paul does not tell these Ephesian Christians to look deep within themselves and find the power and the strength that they need to live the Christian life. Notice that. I mean, he's praying that they would grow up in Christ, that they would mature that they would become more Christ-like. But notice, he doesn't say, okay, guys, you guys got this. You can handle this. You can do it. You know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. White-knuckle your way to, to trying harder to be better. Just, you know, just, just follow your heart. Lean on your own understanding. Trust your instincts. Just look within yourself because you're self-sufficient. You're, you're fully capable Right? That's not at all what Paul says. Do you see that? That Paul's very clear that they need to be strengthened with power, and the power they need comes from the Holy Spirit. That the help, the strength, the enabling power they need is from the Holy Spirit, not from themselves, but from the Holy Spirit who's sent from God to strengthen them in their inner being, in their inner self, in their inner man. And Paul uses this language of outer self and inner self at other places in his letters, and, and, and he compares it often, the outer self, with, with the inner self. And one of the places he does this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. And, and Paul writes this in light of afflictions and sufferings and uh, various kinds of trials. He says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And whenever I read that verse um, in the first service, I saw the same thing happen I saw just now. Several of you were nodding your heads. And I, I, I understand you're saying, Richard, I can relate to that. I understand about my outer self wasting away. And that's the case. See, Paul's taught, he's comparing our outer self, our, our physical bodies, with our inner self. 
the, the core of our personhood, our, our hearts. And while we can tend to be more focused on, more interested in our outer selves, which, as we know, and the reason why many of you were nodding your heads, no matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we work, no matter how much time we invest, no matter how much money we spend, no matter how many procedures and whatever we have, our outer self really is wasting away. Right? It's breaking down. It's wearing out. And remember, Paul knows, Paul knows these, these Christians who are members of First Pres Ephesus, right? He knows them. He ministered to them for years. He knows them. He loves them. But notice what his concern for them is. It's that they would be strengthened in their inner self. It's not all the needs they may have associated with their outer self. But it's their inner being. That's what he's much more concerned with. I mean, look again at verse 16 and 17. Paul prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now notice two things. First, Paul's prayer is deeply Trinitarian. Did you see that? That he prays to God the Father, that he, God the Father, would grant through God the Spirit that Christ, God the Son, may dwell in their hearts through faith. Like, notice that, and I'm not going to say a lot about this, but, but I don't want you to, don't ever believe the lie that the doctrine of the Trinity is merely some dry, impractical, abstract, theoretical concept. That the Trinity is front and center in this prayer by Paul for the Ephesians to grow and to mature spiritually, to to grow in Christ-likeness. And friends, don't miss that the Trinity is our triune God. So don't miss that. Second, don't miss that the inner strengthening that Paul prays for, the Ephesians, is connected with Christ dwelling in their hearts. So look again at verses 16 and 17. See, this is, this is really one petition that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. See, Christ dwelling within us, in our hearts, that's the main way that Paul describes the, the Christian experience of our, our union with Christ. Christ in us and us in Christ. And so, so listen to how Paul writes, how he puts this in Colossians 1, verse 27 and 28. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, right? indwelling Christ, Christ dwelling within you in your heart, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ, union with Christ. Christ in you and you in Christ. Or Galatians 2.20, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, I've I've had many friends over the years who, who picked Galatians 2.20 as their life verse. And so I know that's a verse that, that, that many of us know and many of us, um, you know, we're, we're familiar with it. And, and rightfully so. It's a wonderful verse, a verse worth memorizing. But, but my concern for us is that we can 
become almost too comfortable and take for granted this idea of Christ living within us, dwelling in our hearts. I mean, friends, do you not realize how incredibly stunning that idea is? That Christ, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, dwells within you, dear Christian. That, that, that ought to amaze us, ought to stun us. A pastor, theologian Sinclair Ferguson says, fail to see this and we reveal how little we understand or appreciate the magnitude of what God has done in us. His Son, the Creator who the, who the heaven of heavens cannot contain, the mighty Lord, comes to dwell in frail and sinful mortals. Okay, well, how, how can Christ live in us? I mean, Richard, isn't the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ at God the Father's right hand in heaven? How can Christ live in me if he also lives at God the Father's right hand in heaven? I'm so glad you asked. That's a great question. Now, the answer is Jesus lives in us, dwells in our hearts in the person of the Holy Spirit. John Stott says, Paul never separates the second and third persons of the Trinity. To have Christ dwelling in us and to have the Spirit dwelling in us are the same thing. Indeed, it's precisely by the Spirit that Christ dwells in our hearts, and it is strength which he gives us when he dwells there. You see, that's the point that Paul's making in Ephesians 3, 16 and 17. So look back at those verses. We be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Okay, then you may ask, well, Richard, okay, I, I see that Christ lives in me uh, in the person of the Holy Spirit, but Paul is praying for the Ephesian church, right? Right, Richard? Aren't they already Christians? Doesn't Christ already dwell in every believer's heart by the Holy Spirit? then why, Richard, would Paul pray that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith? Wasn't Christ already dwelling in their hearts through faith? Once again, that's, you guys are asking such good questions. Yes, that's a great question. And the answer is yes, yes, but what he means is that it's possible for Christ to rule over more parts of their lives, more parts of their heart. That more of their heart, more of their lives submitted to Christ and his word. So remember, Paul's praying for these Ephesian Christians to grow spiritually, to mature in Christ. And so he's praying they would be strengthened through the Holy Spirit in their inner being, in their battle against sin, in their battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. He's praying that they would be growing in holiness and growing in, 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 in producing the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit would be growing and, and being displayed in their lives. That more and more their lives would be marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, I think this point is made clearer when we understand the Greek word that's translated dwell in verse 17. So if you look at verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Okay, there are two primary Greek words which mean dwell, but those words have slightly different meanings and emphases. Okay, so the most common of the two words, it does mean to dwell, but it means to dwell in the sense of a visit, a temporary visit. 
Someone who's passing through, and so they stay for a short while. They stay temporarily. They stay for a temporary visit. They, they dwell, but they're not really moving in, moving in. They're just guests. They're just temporary stay. However, that's not the Greek word translated dwell in Ephesians 3.17. See, the word translated dwell in our text only occurs three times in all of Paul's letters, and here's what it means. As opposed to a temporary visit, it means to take up a permanent residence. It means to move in and to stay and have the run of the place. That it refers to a master dwelling or living and ruling in his own house. A master ruling and reigning over that place. Okay, so with that in mind, you understand what Paul's praying for the Ephesians. He's praying that Christ would dwell in their hearts in such a way that he rules over every area of their lives. No area held back. Paul says, "What, what I'm praying for you is not that you would give all of this, all of these areas of your life to Christ, but then keep this one back for yourself and let it be unchanged, unfazed by by your relationship with Christ and what his word says. You know, what Paul's praying is that that Christ would rule over every every area of their lives, over every part of who they are. He's praying for Christ to be the master in in their Lord over their lives, over every area. Now, whenever I was a new Christian, I was given a a little booklet, um, and, and that was a long time ago. It was 24 years ago I was given this booklet, but this booklet was already over 50 years old, I think, whenever it was given to me. And a little booklet titled, My Heart, Christ Home. And it was written by Robert Munger, a short little book. And it's based on our text, on Ephesians 3, verse 16 and 17. And in this little pamphlet, just a few pages, the author uses an analogy for the Christian life. Really, an analogy of the Christian life, uh, a, a Christian's heart, being like a house, being like a home. And, and, and what you read in a little booklet is that this new Christian you know, that, you know, invites Jesus into his heart, into his home. And, and then he's walking around with Jesus, looking at all the different rooms in the house. And as Jesus goes from, from room to room, there are different things that Jesus identifies and says, you know what, now that I'm here, that's got to go. Now that I'm here, this needs to change. We can't keep this here. This has got to go, and we got to replace it with this. And he goes around the house room by room. And so the first room was the study or the library, which is in the analogy represents the believer's mind and thoughts. And there in the study, Jesus finds things that were not true, were not good, not pure, not lovely, not honorable, not helpful. And Jesus says, these things have to go. We need to throw these things out. We need to replace them with the truth of my word. The next room he goes to is the dining room of appetites and desires. And Jesus says, there are things here that have to go. We need to replace these sinful desires of pride and greed and selfish ambition and lust with humility, meekness, love, so forth. And then this same process is repeated in all the other rooms. And and you can imagine what what is there in all the different rooms of this this person's heart, the, the rooms such as the living room, in the workroom, in the recreation room, in the bedroom. And in each room, Jesus identifies some things to change, some things to remove and toss out, and some things to add in. 
And as this person goes around with Jesus, all these different rooms in their heart, um, sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's hard. Sometimes you know, he's happy to let Jesus into that room, and other times it's, it's, you can tell it's very costly. And there are things he's got to let go of that, that he cherishes. But the very last room that, that he takes Jesus to is really not a room, and he doesn't take Jesus there. Jesus finds it. You see, it, it's a locked hall closet. And it's the closet that was locked, the only room that was locked, and, and, and that this Christian didn't want Jesus to know about it. He had hoped that he would just overlook it. He could go into all the other rooms and he could take things out, put things in, but he had hoped that this, this closet would just stay hidden, stay forgotten, just be his. But here's what we read in this little booklet. In that closet behind lock and key, I had one or two little personal things I did not want anybody to know about. Certainly I did not want Christ to see them. They were dead and rotting things left over from the old life. Not wicked, but not right and good to have in a Christian life. Yet I love them. I love them. I wanted them so much for myself, I was really afraid to admit they were there. I had given him access to the study, the dining room, the living room, the workroom, the rec room, the bedroom, and now he was asking me about a little two-by-four closet. I said to myself, this is too much. I am not going to give him the key. But I had to give in. I'll give you the key, I said sadly. But you'll have to open the closet and clean it out. I haven't the strength to do it. I know, he said. I know you haven't. Just give me the key. Now, Alicia and I have, have owned two homes, uh, both here in Houston. And the first one, we moved in, and it, both were old homes, but the first one had already been renovated. Everything was made nice, and we moved right in, and it was great. The second home, the one we're in now, was the opposite of that, okay? It was very, very old, um, but it was in very, very, very bad shape. Almost everything had to be redone. I mean, the, the floors, the walls, the, the ceilings, uh, the heating and AC, the yard was a wreck. We had an old shed we had to tear down, and there was you know, trees that had to be removed. Um, and also, the home was infested with fleas, okay? Which, by the way, don't buy a home like that. That's just my, that's just my, my advice to you guys, okay? But, but thankfully, some great friends helped us navigate all of this stuff. And every analogy, okay, tends to break down at some point. But I think that thinking of the Christian life like moving into a home that needs quite a bit of renovation is actually helpful. It's helpful for understanding Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. Remember, this, this, these are people that he loves. He knows them. He's praying for them. You see, when Jesus first indwells the Christian's heart, he finds many different problem areas. And, and, and you know, in, in the rooms of our hearts, okay, to keep this analogy going, the rooms of our hearts, they don't all look the same. Some of those rooms and some of our hearts are in much better shape than in others, and then, then, then there are t rooms that are in much worse shape in others' hearts. But he finds many different problem areas, and Jesus gets to work by the Holy Spirit, working through the Word of God in the hearts of the people of God, sanctifying us, conforming us more and more to the image of Christ, enabling us by the power of the Holy Spirit to more and more die unto sin and to more and more live unto righteousness. Theologian D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, make no mistake, 
when Christ first moves into our lives, he finds us in very bad repair. He takes, it takes a great deal of power to change us. And that's why Paul prays for power. He asks that God may so strengthen us by his power in our inner being that Christ may genuinely take up residence within us, transforming us into a house that pervasively reflects his own character. You see, in our sanctification, in our Christian lives, in our sanctification, we are all a work in progress. We all are a work in progress. We all need to be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell and rule in our hearts through faith. And this is true for all of us. That we all should be praying for the Holy Spirit's power and promptings and spiritual strengthening to be specifically applied to the various areas of our lives where we continue to have ongoing besetting sin struggles. I don't know what those areas are for you, but I bet you know them. You know, what is that area in your life? What are those areas in your life? What are those persistent sin struggles for you? That's the area we need to be focused on. That's the area I think that Paul's words here in Ephesians 3 are challenging us to be praying about, to be addressing. Now, if, if you're honest and you say, Richard, I've got no idea what those areas are in my life, I'll say, well, that's okay. Just ask the person next to you, and they can tell you. They can help you out. You know, your, your spouse knows. Ask your spouse. Ask your children. Ask your parents. Your roommates, your best friends, they'll tell you. If they love you, they'll tell you. They'll be honest with you. And then Pastor Richard Phillips, I think, helps us to think through how to, to apply this to our lives. He asked this question, are you unable to forgive as Christ forgave you? Then pray for the Father to strengthen you with the Spirit's power so that Christ's forgiveness will reign in you. Are you unable to let go of a cherished sin? Pray for the Spirit to unclench the fingers of your hands from that sin. Have you been made aware of a characteristic that is unchristlike? Do you need humility or meekness or honesty, gentleness, or a self-sacrificing spirit? Ask the Father to send the Spirit to apply His power to mold your character so that Christ will take up residence there. So what is that area for you? Or what are those areas in your life? Pray and ask to be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell and rule in your heart, in that area of your heart and your life through faith. You see, friends, this is the path to spiritual maturity. This is the path to, to Christ-likeness. And spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, Christ-likeness, dear Christian, this is your destiny. This is God's will for your life. Your sanctification. It's why Paul prayed for the Ephesians. It's why he prayed they would be strengthened with power by the indwelling of Christ. But the second heading, remember this one's shorter, he also prayed they would be rooted and grounded in love. And so look again at our text. Look again at verses 16 and 17. I'll read verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Now, looking at that last phrase in verse 17, you may notice that Paul does what, what we're often told not to do. Paul mixes his metaphors. Do you see that? 
with rooted and grounded. He, he, he uses a, a botanical metaphor of rooted in love, and he uses a, a construction or architectural metaphor of being grounded in love. But you see what Paul's saying, that we are to be rooted in Christ's love the way a tree is rooted in good soil. The good soil of the Christian life is love. It's the love of God for us in Christ. Be rooted in the soil of God's love. But love is also to be the foundation, our solid rock on which our lives are built. That love is to be the soil and the foundation, and love is to be the fruit of the Christian life. See, Paul prays the Ephesians be rooted and grounded in love because that's what happens when Christ dwells and rules in you by faith. And so it means, on the one hand, we are recipients of God's love for us in Christ. And praise God, this is a love that surpasses knowledge. And we'll talk more about that next Sunday. But it also means love is the soil in which we are rooted, in which we grow, and love is the foundation on which our lives are built. Therefore, we can be people who are marked by love. That our lives are marked by love. Marked by love for God and and love for others. Listen to what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.5. He says, the aim of our charge is love. Paul writing to this young pastor. You know where, he, you know where Timothy was pastoring? In Ephesus. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You see, the aim of the Christian life is, is yes, it's, it's forgiveness of sins and for our sins to be removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Okay, our sins be washed away. Yes, it's for us to be credited with Christ's righteousness, washed clean in the blood of Christ, clothed, covered in Christ's righteousness. But don't miss that the aim, the goal of the Christian life is also that we would live a life of love. That Jesus has redeemed a people. That we are to be a new humanity a new family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ who love our Heavenly Father and who love one another. See, Paul prays the Ephesians be rooted and grounded in love because he knows that love is the preeminent virtue or the preeminent fruit in a Christian. Love for God and love for others. I mean, remember what Jesus said um, in the upper room with his closest disciples really just moments before he was arrested on that night before the cross. In John 13, verse 34 and 35, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus doesn't say, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you're always right. If you win every argument, if you're always in control, if you're always self-disciplined, if you're always put together, he says, if you have love for one another. In 1 John 3, verse 14, we read, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Or in 1 John 4, 20 and 21, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, 
Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Or as Pastor Ian Hamilton sums this up, if we are strangers to love, we must be strangers to the God who is love. The principal evidence that Christ truly is dwelling in our hearts by his spirit is the presence and overflow of love in our lives, first to God and then to his people. Why does Paul pray that the Ephesians would be rooted and grounded in love? Paul knew that they needed a life that was rooted, grounded, anchored, supplied, sustained by God's love because they're called to love one another. And Paul knew it's difficult for sinners to love other sinners. It's even difficult at times for, for saved sinners to love other saved sinners, even within a local church. It's hard. It's not easy. One of the times whenever I'm most reminded of this is whenever I'm officiating a wedding. And, and I, love, I love to officiate weddings, and one of the reasons why I love to, to do it is because I've, I get this front row seat to to, to the groom and the bride right there, and, and they're right, I can see their faces very clearly. And in every wedding I do, and some of you guys have, have, have been there for some of these weddings, there's a point in, in, the, in the wedding homily that, that kind of becomes a little bit awkward at first until you see where I'm going with it. And, and what happens is, is, is towards the end, and I begin to share the gospel. And I'm talking about Christ's life, death, and resurrection to, to purchase forgiveness for our sin, I'm talking about the grace of God. And when I share the gospel and I explain that Jesus loved sinful people who betrayed him, who abandoned him, who let him down, I then really begin, I begin to address the, the groom and the bride. And I begin to, I, I tell them, even though they look so, so beautiful and so handsome. You know, as you know, they do on, on that wedding day. They look, they're stunning. They're glowing. They look so beautiful. They look so handsome. They look simply perfect. And even though I know that they're so in love, and as is often the case, I know that they are spiritually mature. It's a godly young man, godly young woman. I, 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 I know, even though I know that they're going to be, he's going to be a good husband. She's going to be a good wife. I then remind them, even though that's true, you are going to hurt one another. You're going to wound one another. You're going to let one another down, and sometimes very deeply. And I remind them that this is why you need to remember the gospel, the grace of the gospel, that, that Christ, Christ lived for you, bled for you, died for you. Christ saved you not because you're so lovable, but because of his grace, because he set his love on you, not because you deserved it. And so you're gonna be called in your marriage to choose to love one another even when your spouse seems quite unlovable. You don't feel like loving them anymore. And I do that because it's honest, and I do that because marriage is hard, and loving one another is hard even within the church. And see, and I tell you this because God's word here in Ephesians 3 and in many other places calls us to be rooted and grounded in love as we love God and we love one another. Because as we love sinners who really sin against us, it's hard. And this is why Paul prays for the Ephesians. You see, no sinful person can love other sinful people just leaning on their, drawing from their own resources. 
drawing from their own strength, that only the power of the Holy Spirit can root us and, and ground us in the love of God in Christ so that we can love one another well. And friends, this doesn't automatically happen. It doesn't automatically happen just because you come to know Christ, boom, all of a sudden now it's easy to love one another. That's not the case at all. And, and you know this, that we, we must work at it even as God works in us. We must work at it. We must pray for the Spirit's enabling power. We must work at it. That we, we must choose to love one another even when it's hard. This is what Paul's talking about in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, when he writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, we are to work out our own salvation as God works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We're to work out our own salvation, not that we are to work for our own salvation. We don't work for our salvation. We are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ's work. Christ has worked for us in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. So we're not saved by our good works, but as we are receive the grace of God, we are called to work, to work towards holiness to work towards loving God and loving one another, to choose to love one another even as God works in us. As my friend David Strain puts it, these two truths must always be kept together. We are to work and God works in us. Holiness is a work we must do. Yet you must immediately assert that no one has advanced a single inch in holiness apart from the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. Both are true. One is not made subservient to the other. They are held together in beautiful biblical tension. Holiness is our duty, and it's God's promise. We must do it, and God will do it. You see, brothers and sisters in Christ, we must pray and seek and ask God to strengthen us with power through the Holy Spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, will be enabled to love one another well. We must commit ourselves to the word of God, to, to reading it, to studying it, to hearing it preached, to discussing it in our homes, with our friends, around our tables. We must commit ourselves to the worship of God with his people, Lord's Day after Lord's Day after Lord's Day. Because it's through prayer and it's through the faithful preaching of God's word and, and faithful worship and the faithful administration of the sacraments that, that we find the ordinary means of grace that God uses to grow us in grace to strengthen our faith, to mature us spiritually, to conform us more and more into the image of Christ, to, to root us and, and ground us deeper and deeper in the love of God in Christ for us. I mean, do you remember that, that quote from the beginning of the sermon? The pastor, he said, here in this prayer in Ephesians 3, we have the distilled essence of the Christian experience. What Paul prays for in these verses is a summary of all that God intends for us in Christ. See, don't miss, friends. God intends for you to grow spiritually. God intends for you to grow in Christ's likeness, to grow in holiness, to be sanctified. If you want to know God's will for your life, it's that you would be holy, that you would be sanctified. 
Now, I know this is a challenging text. It's challenging for me. But I don't want you to feel discouraged or feel overwhelmed. You are not left to clean your life up on your own. That's the whole point of this text. It's what Paul's praying for, that Christ is dwelling in your heart through the Holy Spirit, and he is changing you, and he will continue to change you, to make you new, to enable you, to empower you to walk in newness of life as you pray and ask for his power to be at work in you, as you trust and seek to obey his word, as you worship with his people and fellowship with his people and choose to love his people. Now, we're going to keep coming back to this prayer. We'll be back here next Sunday, and we'll see that Paul has more to pray. He's going to pray that the Ephesians would have the strength to comprehend the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And this is the love of Christ that you, dear Christian, are rooted in and grounded in. And so let me close this sermon the same way I have the other two in this prayer. Let me pray Paul's prayer for you. Let's pray. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.